Well, the summer before my senior year of high school, my uh, best friend in the world, his name's Matt, he dropped by my house late one evening. Uh, we hadn't planned to hang out, so this was a bit strange, and I actually vividly remember feeling nervous. And as it turned out, I had a really good reason. His dad had just accepted a job out of state, and they would be moving in just a short few weeks. And he came to my house that night to break the news to me and to begin the long, hard, arduous process of saying goodbye. Immediately, my nervousness in that moment turned to deep, deep sorrow. Sadness, this, this overwhelming sense and feeling of lonely helplessness. Because let's face it, goodbyes are hard aren't they? I think we've all been there, feeling crushed almost by the weight of having to say goodbye to someone that we deeply, deeply love. Which then for me begs a question. I'm interested in this idea, this question, can a goodbye ever be good news? Can a goodbye ever be good news? In our passage this morning, which you just heard Anne read for us, the first 15 verses of John 16, Jesus answers this question, can a goodbye ever be good news, with a surprising but resounding yes. And let's find it together. Take a look again at the text with me and see where. It's verses 6 and 7 where Jesus says, but because I have said these things, which these things refers both to the fact that he is leaving them, his closest friends and followers, and the trouble of trial and persecution and suffering that awaits them. But because I have said these things to you, understandable sorrow, I'm inserting that word, right? Understandable sorrow has filled your heart. Never, and this is it right here, right? This blows my mind. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage. The version that Anne read said, it is better for you that I go away. It's better that we say goodbye, Jesus says here in these verses. I know it's hard. I know that it brings about sorrow, but I tell you the truth. Our goodbye is good news. Which again, this is an astounding statement, an incredible statement, I would say, that also is incredibly hard to believe. An incredible statement that is incredibly hard to believe. Because again, we're talking about Jesus Christ here. Jesus, the literal Son of God, how could it possibly be good news to say goodbye to Him? How could it possibly be good news? Well, I intentionally held the back half of verse 7 short, and this reveals the fullness of Jesus' thinking. Let's add it in. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, there it is, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we learned a couple of Sundays ago while studying John chapter 14 that the helper is what Jesus calls how he refers to the third member of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, here doing the teaching, and God the Holy Spirit, or in Jesus's language, the helper. And you see, in God's design of the ordering of salvation history, the Holy Spirit does not come to make his home in Christians until after the full work of Jesus is finished here on earth. And so this then is Jesus's point. According to him, this goodbye is good news because the Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. Jesus makes this point definitively in our text this morning. And we, 
we all immediately know what I mean by consolation prize, right? Like, I thought of an example from my life. In seventh grade, I tried out for my school's basketball team. Now, the, the prize in this scenario would not have been cash or even a trophy. The prize of tryouts for a sports team is what? It's making the cut, right? It's making the team. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't make the cut. Uh, I actually was cut from the team in this brutal moment. I, I vividly, I mean, I'm just like, I'm in the gym right now. Like, I'm here right now, but in my mind, I'm so, I'm in the gym. The, the coach, I have no idea why he did it this way. He just rounds us all up in this big circle, and he read off the names of everybody who made the team. Like, we have no list anywhere. So, like, as the tears are streaming down my face, everybody else can see that, right? Uh, I didn't make it out of the gym before I cried. So, I didn't get the prize of making the team but later I got the consolation prize where the coach took pity on me and let me to be the manager. <laughs> like, you get it, right? Like, that's a consolation prize. And did I say yes? You better believe I said yes, right? Like, okay, so you get it, right? And Je the point is, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is not that. The Holy Spirit is not that. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. Not at all. And this passage outlines Jesus' thinking on why and how this is true. And actually, the whole broader section of John's gospel remains relevant to this particular discussion about the Holy Spirit. And this, this shouldn't surprise us. We're in the middle of a magnificent few chapters of John's gospel. There's more than 150 verses of Jesus' final teaching to his closest friends and followers. These chapters in John's gospel, they are intimate, they are beautiful, they're all about love and obedience and courage and peace and joy. And every single inch of these verses and this teaching from Jesus is all deeply connected and interrelated to. You cannot pull it apart. If you start trying to pull these chapters apart, you lose basically everything in that act. So multiple times in the midst of these chapters, we encounter the phrase that actually leads off our passage for this morning, uh, John 16, 1, I have said all these things. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And whenever we encounter that highlighted phrase in these chapters, Jesus is putting it there to draw, he wants us to zoom back out and take in the totality of what he's said in these chapters. It's not just a reference to what he has said most immediately. He's asking his original listeners as he did this teaching, and he's asking us as his readers here today to keep in mind the totality of his teaching. I've said all of this that I've been covering now. I've said it all to you. And here, he says, one of the reasons that I've said all these things to you is what? To keep you from falling away. Which makes a ton of sense coming out of the end of John chapter 15. That was last week's passage, and Pastor Johnny did a great job unpacking this really complex idea that the world is going to be opposed to Christians. Importantly, Pastor Johnny reminded us, first, that God deeply loves the world, right? God, God loves the world. The world hates Jesus and his followers, but God's response to the hatred of the world is one of deep love. But even so, there is this unavoidable conflict between Christians and those in humanity who reject Jesus and his ways. There's a conflict between Christians who are people that abide in Jesus, Jesus the vine. A conflict between Christians and those then disconnected branches. That's the metaphor at the beginning of John 15. Disconnected branches who don't want to plug into Jesus as their power source. 
and who operate, operate off of a different agenda than one of sacrificial love. And friend, this conflict is real. And it gets real messy, too. It get, gets real messy, too. Jesus explains more in verses 2 through 4 of our passage for this morning, John 16. Let's add those verses in. We can see how all of this flows together. So he's coming out of John 15, and he says, I have said all these things to you, everything I've taught, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, which means you're cut off from your, your community, not just your religious community, but, but every fabric of your community. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor known me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, when the hour of the suffering comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Draw back to mind all of my teaching when you are experiencing this hard-hitting suffering and persecution. I mean, Jesus is not one to mince words, is he? But again, there's already teaching for us to draw back upon and teaching that is specific in this section already to the Holy Spirit. So back in John 14, we've already seen how closely Jesus connects his initial teaching on the Holy Spirit helper to his offer of a different kind of peace than what is on offer from the world. Those verses, we're going to look back just quickly at them, John 14, 26, and 27. They read this way, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world, there's the world again, not as the world gives do I give to you, but let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see the overlaps between this passage just a couple of chapters earlier and what we're covering this morning? Here's the first way the Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. He provides peace for the suffering. The Holy Spirit provides peace for the suffering. Now, this theme of Jesus' offer of peace and comfort in the midst of suffering and hardship, this theme has been on repeat, on repeat, on repeat in this section of John's gospel, and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time looking at it next week because we see it again in a major way at the end of John 16. But it's here as well, right? It's here. You will be put out of the synagogues. The time is coming. The hour is coming when anyone who kills you thinks that they are offering service to God. Well, what do you do in the midst of that? Well, you can turn to the Holy Spirit helper who provides a different kind of peace than the peace of the world. He provides peace. He provides peace for the suffering. Again, Jesus, I don't mind hitting this theme over and over again because Jesus did. And I am confident that it's a good idea to follow his example. Right? And, and after all, who doesn't? Is there anyone here today that would say, oh, I don't need this reminder that the Holy Spirit provides peace for the suffering? Listen, I thought about this this week. Every single human, every single one, every, every single human on this planet is either currently navigating a time of hardship, just finished navigating a time of hardship, or has another time of hardship that is cresting over the horizon. Every single human is either currently navigating a season of hardship, just finished one up, or has another one that's cresting over the horizon. And so in my view, what that means is that Jesus' offer of transcending peace by way of the Holy Spirit is universally relevant. 
in my mind, this ought to have universal appeal. The Holy Spirit's not a consolation prize. He offers peace for the suffering. But also this, also this. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. This is the second. The first is that the Holy Spirit offers peace for the suffering. The second is this. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. And we see this in kind of the bulk central of our passage this morning, John 16, verses 8 through 11. So we can look back at those. And we're going to spend quite a few minutes sitting in these rather dense verses and hoping to understand them together, seeking to understand them together. So Jesus here says, and when he, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. So you see here with me that there are three unique and distinct ways that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. Concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Let's go through them. I want to help us try to understand. First, concerning sin. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, meaning the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its active rebellion and disobedience against God and his ways. And I think of the three distinct ways that the Holy Spirit convicts the world, this, this is the most straightforward of the three, even when we include the reasoning that Jesus gives. And I'm glad he does, right? You're kind of going, okay, convict the world, sin, righteousness, judgment, well, well why? And Jesus offers specific reasoning for it. So you can see it with me in the text, right? He convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts the world because of sin because the world does not believe in Jesus. Listen, fundamentally at the root of all sin is unbelief. Fundamentally at the root of all sin is unbelief. And, and I think we can prove this by going back to the Garden of Eden, back to the first sin. There, in Genesis chapter 3, the surface sin, if I can use that language, the surface sin from Adam and Eve was their disobedience in eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But dig deeper with me and see that underneath the surface, at their core, the sin was actually disbelief in God. Adam and Eve distrusted that God's way and God's boundary was designed for their flourishing and for their good. They disbelieved this, and where did it lead them? It led them to sin. It led them to sin. And the same is true, track with me on this, the same is true for each and every sin from every person ever. And thus, this is a primary job of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world concerning its sin. Well, why did they sin? Well, they didn't believe in me, Jesus says. And so this is like job primary responsibility on the Holy Spirit's job description is to convict the world concerning its sin because they didn't believe in Jesus. But number two, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit also convicts the world concerning its righteousness, concerning its righteousness, which on the surface seems rather confusing, doesn't it? It almost seems the opposite of the sin. If the sin is the disbelief and the reasons why we are unrighteous, then how is it then that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning righteousness? Well, notably, this is the only time the word righteousness appears in John's gospel. It's the only time. But, but, John does love over and over and over again to quote from or allude to the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah. He does love to do that. And in an incredibly significant verse in that book, so we're in the Old Testament now, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. 
we see there that Isaiah makes the point, God inspiring Isaiah to make the point, that the righteousness of the people, of God's people in that moment, added up to nothing more than what he calls filthy rags. That their righteousness was nothing more than filthy rags. And the idea there, quite clearly, and I think the idea here in John 16, seems to be that the word righteousness is referring to a false or a fake righteousness, to an empty, vapid, bankrupt righteousness. It refers to those times when we might be doing the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We might be doing the right thing, but if you're honest and I'm honest, there's regularly moments where we're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And so we almost should put these massive quotes around righteousness to help us remember that when John is talking about it here, or when Jesus, or when John records Jesus talking about it here, it's righteousness, right? It's fake righteousness. It's false righteousness. It's empty righteousness. It's those times when we do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And listen, I'll tell you what, I've been following Jesus a long time. I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a pastor for, you know, just more than a day or two. And this really steps on my toes. Hopefully I'm not alone in that. Like if I'm really honest and self-examine, it's like, ooh, boy. Yeah, I guess the Holy Spirit needs to do that convicting work in my own life for the fake righteousness, the times when I do the right thing but for the wrong reasons. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he brilliantly unpacks and presses into this idea. It's in his book about the parable of the prodigal son. It's called The Prodigal God. I actually have a few copies of this. If you want to grab me, I'd be happy to, to give a couple of them out today. But here's what he writes. He says, what, we, what must we do then to be saved? What must we do then to be saved? Well, to find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. That's the first way the Holy Spirit convicts the world, convicts the world of its sin. But if that's all you do, you may just remain an elder brother, which is a reference to the parable in Luke 15 that this book is about. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness or their fake false righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all of our other sins and under all of our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord because we don't believe that that job should belong to Jesus. We must admit that we've put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God and that in both our wrongdoing and in our right doing, we have been seeking to get around God or to control God in order to get a hold of those things. It is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, your fake moral goodness or your far moral goodness, that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize... When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. You are on the brink. That there has to be a third way because so often our righteousness becomes righteousness. And I think, too, Jesus' explanation of why this is a part of the Holy Spirit's ministry helps strengthen this interpretation. We can find it again in the text. Let's put John 16, 8 through 11 up. You can see that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning righteousness. Why? Why is he going to do that? Well, because I, meaning Jesus, goes to the Father and you will see me no longer. You see, the idea is that this work of convicting people of their righteousness, this was a core part of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? 
that's certainly a point of emphasis in John's gospel. I think back over the almost countless run-ins that Jesus had with really religious, quote-unquote, righteous people. This was a central component of the, this is what the work, this is a main part of the work that Jesus took up during his short, relatively short ministry on earth. And so now that he's going back to the Father, the Holy Spirit will take up this mantle. I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Someone has to continue this vitally important work to convict the world of its fake righteousness, its false righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit will do that. That's number two. First sin, second righteousness, third judgment. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. And the Holy Spirit does this, Jesus reasons, see it with me in the text, because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's the phrase there that I want you to grab. The ruler of this world is judged. That's a reference to the devil. And earlier in John's gospel in chapter 8, Jesus definitively clearly tells us that the devil is the father of lies and that his rule and reign has been completely characterized by deception, and that he has so warped the world that many within it regularly call good what is evil, and many regularly call evil what is good. There's a reversal, there's a flipping upside down of the world's moral order, of the entire way of seeing the world has been warped by the father of lies, the devil, the ruler of this world, the prince of this world. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes this point powerfully, painfully. Verse 25 reads, and it references those in humanity who are not in Christ. They, that's the reference there, they traded the truth about God for a lie. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. In other words, the point there and in John 16 is that their judgment was faulty. Their lens for how they saw and see the world was off. It was warped without knowing it. Their world is actually upside down, inside out, backwards, forward, and their judgment is wrong. Because they've been led into it by the ruler and prince of the world who, man, his judgment is wrong. He judged wrongly from the beginning. To see God in his rightful place at the center of the universe and to desire of that and to fight towards that and press towards that. That's the devil. That's his origin story and that's the work. That's his mission is to warp the world of its judgment. We need a new way. The the Holy Spirit comes now to convict the world of this because we desperately need it. The world desperately needs to have those lenses removed to begin to see clearly and rightly and to guide into all truth. Right? And so the Holy Spirit brings conviction in all of these areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And listen, I know, and I'm right with you, I had to write this sermon this week about conviction. It's not the most fun. You didn't wake up this morning going, ah, I'd love to hear a, an extended section on conviction, right? But this is incredibly necessary, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, think with me about how much even Christians still need this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. When I look over my own life, I often sin. I often display a fake surface-level righteousness, and I often possess a faulty upside-down judgment. So the Holy Spirit is still convicting me quite regularly, and maybe he is doing the same thing in your own life. And friends, if Christians still need the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, how much more the world? 
how much more the world. And as the Holy Spirit does this, both in and through us, I mean, don't miss that as the Holy Spirit dwells inside us, in, in humble ways, we are part of carrying the Holy Spirit's mission forward, right? As we communicate truth, as the Holy Spirit does this, well, it is a big part of why we experience the persecution that Jesus talks about in this section, isn't it? I mean, here's just a sampling of what the Holy Spirit says, of how he is bringing conviction to our world today. The Holy Spirit says that racial inequality must be addressed. Holy Spirit says that the unborn must be protected. The Holy Spirit says that vulnerable women and children must be cared for. In fact, in, in James, we read that that is the, the test case of true religion, right? If you want to know, like, false religion doesn't care for vulnerable women and children, but true religion does. The Holy Spirit says that cohabitation, pornography, and sex outside of biblical marriage is unwise and sinful. The Holy Spirit says that forgiveness is necessary. How does the Lord's prayer go? Right, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. The Holy Spirit says we actually must love our enemies. That generosity and, and giving away of our time, talent, and treasure, that's the best life. The Holy Spirit says that our time is not our own. In fact, it also says your bodies are not your own, but you were purchased with a price. The Holy Spirit says that our identities are not something that we get to invent. And on and on and on and on. This is how the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. And well then, it's no wonder that the world hates us. That the world hates, they're not of God. All right, there's no wonder. There is no doubt in my mind, I have been walking this, and if you are a Christian, you have been walking this too. It is a treacherous journey that we embark upon. This is indeed a treacherous journey. And for a treacherous journey, do you know what you need? You need a guide. Well, that's next. The Holy Spirit provides peace for the suffering, convicts the world, and guides God's people. The Holy Spirit guides God's people. Take a look. See this with me at verses 12 and 13 in our passage. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I love that. That's just an, an aside here. That line just slays me, right? I say that to my kids all the time. Like, you can't handle it, right? Like, this is Jesus to us. Like, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't handle it. When the spirit of truth comes, don't worry, I'm not leaving you hanging. I know I'm leaving. But the spirit is going to continue this work. And how is he going to do it? He is going to guide you into, I love this, not just some truth, not just a little bit of the truth, not just like, you know, like 2% milk, right? Like not just 2% of the truth. No, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into what? Into all truth. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. He will guide you. For he's not going to speak on his own authority. Just like Jesus says, he didn't speak on his own authority, but from God the Father himself. Whatever the Holy Spirit hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will guide you into what? Into all truth. Guide. We need a guide for this treacherous journey. You know, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And the, the center of that story, the center of this epic story is about a treacherous journey, isn't it? It's about a treacherous journey that Frodo takes with his friends to destroy the ring of power in Mordor. It literally takes three massive books or three really, really long movies for this journey to develop. And along the way, Frodo and his friends experience being led by very, very different guides, don't they? When there are times where they're being led by Aragorn, 
Aragorn or Gandalf. They are these trusted expert guides that valiantly protect Frodo and his friends, lay down their lives to do that in some cases, while charting the correct path forward. But then, but then, for a large percentage of the journey, Frodo and Sam are beholden to having to use Gollum as a guide. Right? And just like throwing his picture up on the screen, like, is this a good guide or a bad guide? Right? It's like, you know, you know right away, this is not a good guide. Okay, that's enough. We can, get, we can get his picture off the screen now. Right? The point is this, friends. The Holy Spirit is the most trusted of guides. The Holy Spirit is the most trusted of guides. He is Gandalf, not Gollum. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is even better than Gandalf. For he is God himself. And as such, he possesses and leads us into all truth. All truth. Which is again what John says in verse 13. And what's more, he declares to us the things that are to come as well. Which likely is a reference to the Holy Spirit's inspiration. The Holy Spirit's role in the inspiration of the New Testament. The things that are to come. Which immediately about to come is Jesus' death and resurrection, and then the New Testament reflects backwards upon the significance of that universe-altering event. And the Holy Spirit is central to God's plan to, for us as followers of Jesus, as Christians, those of us that, that follow Jesus, for us to have the New Testament, to have God's Word as one of the primary ways that the Holy Spirit guides us today. Like Jesus, like God and Jesus knew that I needed 27 books in the New Testament telling the story of and reflecting upon the significance of the cross if I was going to start to get it. And we've got it. We've got it. We can crack it open. We do crack it open each and every week here because we need the Holy Spirit to guide us through his word, through his people, through the quiet whispers in our hearts and souls. We need a trusted guide for this treacherous journey. And in the Holy Spirit, we have one. We have one. When I try to guide myself, I fail. When I try to guide myself, I fail. Maybe you've experienced that as well. You're lost in the woods. You've strayed off the path. You've, you've been warped into believing lies instead of believing truth. Holy Spirit, guide us, please. Holy Spirit, guide us, please. I don't know what to do with my kids. Holy Spirit, guide me, please. I don't know what to do in this relationship. I'm confused. I'm, 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 I'm warped. I, I, I don't understand. Holy Spirit, guide us, please. I'm stuck. I'm so stuck. I don't know. I can't see the next step forward in this area of work or school. Holy Spirit, guide me, please. I, I feel lost when it comes to my future. What's ahead? Where, am I? Where, where, should I, where should I turn? How should I go? Holy Spirit, guide me, please. Friends, be bold. Don't hold back. Keep knocking at the door when it comes to begging the Holy Spirit to guide you. Beg him. You know, wrestle him to the ground. Don't let him go until he's guiding you. And ultimately what he does, ultimately what the Holy Spirit does is he guides you to Jesus. He guides you to Jesus. And that's our fourth and final idea briefly as we close. The Holy Spirit preaches Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit preaches Jesus to us. I'm drawing this from the final two verses of our passage today. It's verses 14 and 15. We can take one more look at them together. He will glorify me. Holy Spirit, helper, will glorify me, Jesus. For he will take what is mine, <coughs> take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
I'm translating the idea of glory. He will glorify me. I'm translating the idea of glory into preaching. And I want to try to define glory to help you see how I'm making that connection. It's a bit rough, but I like defining glory as to make a big deal about. Making a big deal about something or somewhere or someone. Make a big deal about. So when you experience, we know this actually intuitively, when you experience an incredibly, uh, incredible new restaurant, and you're going on and on and on about it. What are you doing? You are making a big deal about that restaurant. You are, in essence, glorifying it. You are bringing glory to it. And church, please hear me clearly. When I think about my preaching, <coughs> when I think about what I try to do here each and every Sunday, when I stand up here, my central aim the, the nexus of what my goal is as a preacher is to make a big deal about Jesus. If I've done that by the end of the sermon, then I've succeeded. If I haven't, I've failed. So preaching, in my view, the central aim of it is to glorify Jesus, to make a big deal about Jesus. And here in John 16, Jesus says that a central part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus as well. And he's glorifying Jesus not in an abstract sense. He is glorifying Jesus to us. Now, I'm going to grab some water. Is that okay? (laughs) Can I do that? Thank you. I always bring it up here. So the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus to us. He makes a big deal about Jesus to us. He preaches Jesus to us in a sense. And I am so grateful for this because I know, I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so, you just got to laugh, right? <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> I was about to end really poorly. <laughs> I know how desperately I need the sermon of Jesus preached to my heart and soul every single day. Do you know that? Can you admit that your heart and your soul desperately needs the sermon of Jesus preached to it every single day? The sermon of grace, the sermon of love, the sermon of humility, the sermon of forgiveness and second chances, the sermon of truth. The sermon of all truth, the sermon of a better way to live, a fuller way to live, the sermon of Jesus. I think your heart and soul needs it every day. And the Holy Spirit, he's preaching it. He's preaching it. Do you hear it? Because the problem is there's a lot of other conflicting and competing sermons that we preach to ourselves and that the world preaches to us as well. Isn't that right? There's the sermons of inadequacy, of shame, of rejection, of despair, of selfishness, of loneliness, of entitlement, of anger, of pride. So many of the sermons that we preach to ourselves and our flesh and that the world preaches to us, all of them even, are destructive and misleading. But all the while, there is another sermon that's being preached. The Holy Spirit is preaching Jesus to us, and we have to listen. When you're afraid, the sermon is this, Jesus is with you. When you're overwhelmed, the sermon is this, Jesus will help you. When you're sad, the sermon is this, Jesus sees you. He sees you and he sits with you in your sadness and in your grief. When you feel alone, the sermon is this, Jesus wants you and he loves you no matter what. 
when you're overcome with shame, the sermon is this. Jesus accepts you and he forgives you. And on and on and on. The Holy Spirit is always preaching Jesus to us. Are we listening? The Holy Spirit's not a consolation prize. He offers peace for the suffering. He convicts the world. He guides us. He guides us into all truth as God's people. And he preaches Jesus to us. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the grace of this congregation to bear with me as I uh, cough and need water and have something stuck in my throat. Thank you for laughter. Thank you for uh, this gathering, these people, this moment. Thank you, for, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who has this incredible spotlight ministry to, to, to shine this incredibly bright light upon what you're doing, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in and through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the helper that you and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit helper and God, don't let us miss the sermon that he's preaching to our hearts and souls. But help us instead to hear it. And to hear it over and above the sermons that are being preached to us by our own flesh and by the world around us. But instead, help us to hear the sermon of the Holy Spirit preaching Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.